come from. This is supposed to be one of the lower days of the year. I mean, it's school starts back next week. Everybody's supposed to be on vacation. Where, why are you guys here today? I figured it was going to be us four and no more, and uh, we'd have a good time, but it would just be a few of us. But I'm grateful to God that uh, there's a lot of people here today. A lot of kids just left to go to Children's Church, and so we're excited about that. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to close up shop on this letter. This morning, we've been in this letter for a better part of four months, and so we're going to finish it this morning, Lord willing, and and uh, move on to the book of Revelation in two Sundays, a series that I've entitled, Get Ready. If you read the first three verses of the book of Revelation, and you'll, you'll see there the reason for that revelation, the reason the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus spoke to John and gave him this, this revelation of what was to come. It's not just so that we would be able to see the signs of, of the return of Christ, though that is a good portion of the reason for the revelation, but it's really summed up in those first three verses so that we would be ready for the return of Christ, that people would be uh, urged to put their faith and trust in Jesus, that we as the church, the body of Christ, would be looking for that day, thus sharing with anyone and everyone we can to make sure they're prepared and ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we'll begin that on September 8th. This morning we're going to finish up here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the year 156 A.D., an 86-year-old man was brought before a Roman official and he was asked, better yet, he was demanded to renounce his atheism. He was no atheist by our standards. We would classifies an atheist as someone who would not believe or would believe that there is no God, I should say. But this man was a devout Christian. He was like us. He's known to us as the Bishop of Smyrna. His name is Polycarp. You'll see a rendition of what he possibly would have looked like in the event that I'm describing for you this morning. Polycarp had served Christ since his childhood. He came to know the Lord early in his life and spent the rest of his years, all the way up to the age of 86, for the Lord. To the Romans, this man was an atheist. He had refused to worship the emperor as a god, along with the rest of the pantheon of Roman gods. Polycarp knew denial uh, would mean a painful death. He knew that if he would not recant his faith in Jesus, then it would be his death. It would mean that he would suffer intensely because of his refusal to deny the Lord Jesus. Either he would be thrown into the arena and uh, killed by a wild animal, or he would be burned at the stake, as you can see in this picture. Three times, Polycarp was questioned, and three times he was invited to renounce his atheism, but but no renunciation of Christ would he make. Swear I release, curse Christ, urged the Roman official, to which Polycarp replied every single time, 86 years I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp was not saved. He was not spared that day. A fire was built. Soldiers grabbed him and proceeded to try to nail him to the stake so that he wouldn't wiggle and run off. Polycarp stopped them. He said to them, leave me as I am. For he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre or the stake unmoved and without the security you desire from nails. In other words, what Polycarp was saying is, you no need for you to tie me. There's no need for you to nail me to this stake. I will stand here in the strength and the power of the Lord Jesus because he is with me and I will die with him and I will not forsake him. 
prayed aloud. The fire was lit and his flesh was consumed. But his words echoed down through the centuries. Eighty-six years I've served him, and he's done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The story of Bishop Polycarp reminds us of faithfulness. This man was faithful to the very end. His story is reminiscent of the Apostle Paul's story as we've been looking at it through this letter of the last few months. Both men were devout followers of Jesus. Both were put on trial for their faith. And both were faithful to the very end of their lives, even in the face of death. Their stories encourage us to press on, to remain faithful in our service to the Lord, even until the very end, even in the face of anything that the enemy or anyone else would bring against us. Paul's message here in 2 Timothy centers around, as we've talked about, a daily grind with the Lord. It's not just a flash-in-the-pan type faith. It is a daily grind, every single day, walking with the Lord Jesus. So as we've walked through this letter, verse by verse, looking at what Paul had to say, we've seen that Paul here is writing to encourage his mentee in the faith, his protege in the faith, the one he's passing the mantle on to. Three years ago, we worked through the first letter that he wrote to Timothy. There, Paul, in that letter, is, is talking about the, the, the church. He's there to encourage and equip this pastor of the church at Ephesus to encourage him in how he should lead the church and structure the church. He's talking about the nature and the practice of the local church. Talking about widows and public worship and all the things that deal with what it means to be a local church. Here in this letter, Paul's focusing on the personal ministry of this pastor. He's talking about him personally walking with the Lord. He's talking about him being faithful to the very end in all things. We've talked about how in this letter, most likely this was Paul's final letter. He has probably already faced the trial. He's already been... Uh, sentence. He's now awaiting execution. Uh, you just read through the letter, you see that uh, Paul expected to be executed soon. We'll see that here in the first three verses that we're going to read. And even though Paul mentioned that Luke was with him, we still picture this war-torn apostle uh, struggling and, 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 and going through all sorts of difficulty. He wants his cloak. He wants his scrolls. He wants to see Timothy. He's lamenting those who have walked away from him and yet rejoicing with those who have stayed strong in the faith. And what we find here in this letter is a strong and passionate personal tone, which is understandable because Paul had this strong, almost like a father-son relationship with Timothy. He's writing to encourage him in the faith, to remain faithful to the end. So Paul's purpose here was to help Timothy continue to walk with Jesus. He wants to spur him on in godly training. And we've seen that he used his own life as an example. In fact, we began this series by stating this. You don't wake up a success story. Think about that. You don't wake up a success story living however you want and doing whatever you want. And then all of a sudden you wake up and like, all right, my life is a success. No, you become a success when you put in the daily grind. You put in the work day after day after day. That's how you become a success. You work toward it in your life. Paul was faithful to the end because he determined to do that in his own life. Early on in his walk with Jesus, he determined to walk in a daily grind out his faith with Christ. He desired to both live and die well for the glory of God. And here in his final words, they're giving to Timothy to encourage him to be faithful to the end. Let's look at 
verse 6 through 22, and finish out what Paul has to say to Timothy. If you don't have a Bible this morning, the words are for us on the screen. Paul says to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as, out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That got to give you encouragement this morning, that Paul's not just saying this to Timothy, he's saying it to you and I. There's going to be a day of awarding where the crown of righteousness is placed upon us because we have been faithful like Paul to the very end. Verse 9, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come... Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also bring the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Dear best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. As Paul here is concluding this letter to Timothy, he looks back over his life and he doesn't look back over his life with, with uh, heartache. He doesn't look back in, in defeat. He looks back in triumph. He looks back over all the things that he's been through and he sees nothing but the Lord's triumph in his life. See, God has been good and God has been faithful to him through the thick and the thin, through the times of, uh, of blessing and prominence, through the blessing of, of just having a bunch and even the times of having little. He's been blessed with many godly friends and he has had the privilege of establishing churches and discipling numerous of people all across the Roman Empire. God has been good to this man. Several of these people are still serving the Lord. Their friendship remains strong and vibrant. Others, however, as he points out here, have turned away. Some have walked away from Christ. We see that in chapter 1, verse 15. Others have simply distanced themselves from the apostle. That being here, uh, Demas, in verse 10, who distanced himself from the Lord and left and went to Thessalonica. Paul here exhorts Timothy in this letter to expect persecution. And many times we've read how he told him that suffering was a part of his own life. Suffering would be the part of a Timoth- or a part of Timothy's life and to expect it and don't be disillusioned by it. Don't run from it. Endure it. Do the work of a soldier. He does not want him to be blind to the fact that persecution and suffering will be there. Instead, he pushes him to be faithful to the very end. And I believe Paul, if he was speaking to us face to face this morning, would push us and encourage us and and try to strengthen us so that we would remain faithful even in the face of persecution. 
Here's a statement we need to understand this morning as Christians. The Lord Jesus desires and expects his followers to be faithful to the end. He expects you to be faithful. He expects you to walk with him because you know what? He's walking with you. Every step of the way he's walking with you. Sometimes you may not be able to see it. Sometimes you may wonder if he's there. He's there because the Bible tells us he's there. So he calls us and expects us to be faithful to him to the very end. Finishing well. Think about what it means to finish well in your life. It's easier said than done. It's easy to start out strong and say, you know what, I'm going to walk with Jesus all of my life. I'm going to, I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm never going to turn away. I'm never going to walk away. I'm never going to recount my faith. I'm never going to step back and, and pace myself. I'm going to walk hot for Jesus every single day of my life. It's easy to say that on the front end. But then the struggle comes. The difficulties come. The heartaches come. The losses come. And sometimes we begin to falter in our faith. It's when we need to lean in and trust the Lord even that much more. It's easier to start well than to finish well. You ever seen a runner? I don't know how many runners we have in the church house this morning, but if you've watched it on television, perhaps in the Olympics or collegiate national championships or something like that, you've always got a runner that starts out strong, right? I mean, they take a big lead, and, and they're almost sprinting. Just th- picture a long-distance race. I used to run long distance when I was in junior high. Then I got smart in high school and ran short distance. You only have to run a short well, and then you get to take a break, and I preferred that. Uh, but when I was running in junior high, I saw it as well. You got these guys who would shoot out there and take a, a real big lead on the front end of the race, and they're running hard, and, and you think, man, if they can keep this pace up, they're going to lap somebody. And all of a sudden, the monkey gets on their back. And they're barely, they're barely even keeping up with their own pace. And so what happens is they begin to slow up and slow up, and people get closer and closer, and then they get behind, and sometimes they don't even finish the race. Paul here is exhorting Timothy to expect persecution, to expect suffering in the ministry. He does not want him to be blind to it and become disillusioned when it comes. Instead, he wants him, wants him to push for faithfulness to the very end, to pace himself, to walk with the Lord. That's really what it is. It's not so much about pacing ourselves so that we can do it in our strength, but it's learning to walk step in step with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we're doing that, we can walk through anything. It doesn't matter what, what comes against us. It doesn't matter what the enemy may bring toward us. We can walk through anything when Jesus is walking with us. And so the Lord desires and expects us to be faithful to the end. Not to fall, not to quit, not to walk away, but to finish the race. That's the goal of the race, is to finish, right? It's to finish. Uh, One of our guys, in fact, one of our new elders that was uh, affirmed last Sunday ran in a half half marathon yesterday. I think he's crazy. He thinks I'm crazy because I lift weights all the time. So we both think we're each other crazy. But, you know, if you go to these marathons, I think there are a few people that want to win it. Most people go into these marathons and half marathons, and I'm speaking from what I've heard from other people talk about because I don't run. I run to the, to the refrigerator, and I run to my truck, and that's about it. But uh, the goal for them is not to beat the other runners. It's to beat their own personal goal, right? It's to finish the race. That is the goal, and to try to improve themselves. That's what it is for the Christian life. It's not to beat someone out. We're going to see that in a moment. But it's to finish and to finish well. 
So Paul here uses his life, once again, as a model for how to finish well, how to be faithful to the end in this thing called the Christian life. Let me share with you three things that we see here in verses 6, 7, and 8, and then I'm going to use verses 9 through 22 sort of as as a springboard at the end as Paul gives his examples of others who have also been faithful to the end, some who have walked away, and some who have completely walked away from the Lord. So here's the first thing I want you to see. How do we be faithful to the end? Here's no, here it is, number one. Give each day of your life as an offering to the Lord. It's a grind, remember? It's a daily grind to walk with Jesus. So every single day, determine in your mind, determine in your heart, this is the Lord's day. I will rejoice and be glad. We used to sing a song like that back in the day. But to give each and every day of your life as an offering to the Lord. That's what Paul is is exemplifying here in verse 6. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. His life was an offering to the Lord. So the present reality for Paul was that he was dying and departing. Here he borrows the vivid image of the drink offering from the Jewish custom of pouring out wine at the base of the altar. We could go back to Exodus chapter 29 and verse 40. We could see there that when the lamb was sacrificed, the the priest would come and he would also pour out a libation, an offering, a drink offering to the Lord. There of the wine at the base of the altar. And so what Paul's saying here is this. My life is given to the Lord as a drink offering. Every single day of my life, I'm being poured out for the glory of God. It's all about Jesus. And so this image of red wine splashing there upon the altar became this operative metaphor for how Paul simply regarded his life. Five years earlier, he had wrote to the church there to Philippi. Philippians chapter 2.17, he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering. In that letter to the Philippians, he was speaking hypothetically. He longed for the day. He knew that day was coming, that he was going to face his executioner. He knew that he was going to die for the faith. God had already revealed this to him. He's sitting in a, in a Roman prison at this point. He's writing to the church at Philippi, and he's telling them to rejoice in all things, and he knows that this day's coming. But is he writing here to Timothy in this letter? It's not just a Uh, a theory. It's not something that's hypothetical. This is reality for him. He uses the present tense in its progressive sense to indicate, indicate the certainty of this event as if it were actually taking place. So this present reality did not disillusion him. I wonder if How many of us this morning, if this is what we were facing, we're sitting in a Roman prison, the maritime prison. We're down in the dungeon part of it. We have no hope. We've been deserted, or at least our brothers and sisters have been sent away. Either way, we're there nearly by ourselves, and we're in depression. We're, we're, We're suffering immensely in every way with clothing and deficiency and food deficiency. What would our reaction be? Paul here was not disillusioned by it. In fact... He was triumphant in it. We see here that he didn't view as this as an imminent execution, but rather as an offering unto the Lord. So for the time of his conversion there on the Damascus Road, everything he had was given to God. Think about what Paul gave to the Lord throughout his life. He gave his wealth. He gave his body. He gave his brilliant mind. I mean, Paul's a brilliant intellect. He gave his passions to the Lord. He gave his position. He was an up-and-coming young Pharisee in the Jewish faith. He gave his reputation, his relationships, and his dreams. For 30 years, the red blood of his life had been spilling onto the altar so that the only thing left to give was now his breath. 
and he triumphantly gave it to the Lord. Paul also spoke of his departure here in this verse. The Greek word used here describes the loosing of a ship from its moorings or a soldier loosing the stakes of his tent. So what Paul is doing here is he uses this image as he's painting this picture of lifting the anchor and tossing aside the roads and joyfully setting sail to a better place. A few months ago, Kara and I were on a cruise and we went to the Bahamas and I love to watch the ship come into port. I love to watch them move that giant mammoth of a ship into this little area and then dock it there. And they shoot these ropes over and these guys come over and they pull it over to the edge of the dock and then when they get ready to, to, to set sail they do the same thing but the opposite way. It's just an amazing thing. So Paul here is using this image of taking the, the ropes of a ship and loosening them from the mooring so that now he can set sail to a better place. That's what he told the Philippians. I desire to go because it is better for that to happen. It's better to be with the Lord. Paul longed for this final and ultimate voyage. C.S. Lewis correctly described death in his book. His book, The Last Battle, he explained to the deceased children there, if you've read this book, he said they were beginning, they were the beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Lewis is talking to these kids about death, and he's telling them that when a Christian dies, it is a good thing, it is a better thing, and our life that we're living, will live with Jesus for eternity every single day is another story. Every single day gets better and better and better. Charles Spurgeon said it this way in his book, Morning by Morning. He said, to come to thee, speaking of God, is to come home from exile, to come to land out of the the raging storm, to come to rest after long labor, to come to the goal of my desires and the summit of my wishes. Spurgeon is, along with Lewis, is saying this, death for the Christian is better than life. For the Christian, we don't die, we depart. That ought to give us hope this morning when one of our dear brothers just went to be with Jesus. We'll do his funeral in the next few days and we'll bring glory to God as we talk about what Jesus did in Lou's life. But we, we, we will weep and we will mourn and we will have sorrow and we will suffer through all this, but we will do it with hope. Why? Because Lou didn't just die. Lou departed and went to be with the Lord. And we know that as followers of Jesus, there will be a day when we depart and we go to meet Jesus, but also our other brothers and sisters. See, there's hope in the gospel. Paul here was able to fight the good fight because there was hope. He firmly believed that to, part, that to depart was far better. He lived each day with his eyes on eternity. So the reason he finished well with, and was faithful to the end was because he lived each day for the Lord. Each new day was an opportunity to pour himself out as a drink offering to the Lord. This morning I hope your desire is to be faithful to the end. I hope your goal in life is to every single day pour yourself out in worship and service to the Lord. Secondly, we see that Paul chose to finish strong. Verse 7, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith. Here in this verse, he looks back over his life again. He's looking at it through the eyes of triumph. And he uses three-word pictures here. First, he uses the analogy of a fight. Paul was a warrior. Now, you, if you looked at Paul and, and some of the other letters, we see that some people, uh, may, perhaps even in the church, definitely those who are outside the church, looked at Paul and said, 
there's not much to admire here from just humanly speaking. He is, he is not a great stature. He didn't have this great look. He was probably bent over and hunched over and studied all the time. He's a bookworm and, and uh, just, you know, a theologi- theological nut job. Uh, and so that's probably what people thought about him. This guy is just, he's just a guy that preaches. Well, there's not much about this guy, and yet he was a warrior. He didn't look like a fighter, and yet he was a fighter. He was a spiritual warrior. Think about what Paul did in his life and who he stood against. He stood against the religious leaders there in Jerusalem. He stood before Felix and Agrippa. He stood before the officials of Rome. He had an opportunity to preach the gospel in defense of himself, but really not even of himself, in defense of Christ before the emperor of Rome. He was a spiritual warrior. He was a man's man. He was God's man, better yet. He endured riots in Ephesus, the opposition there in Corinth. He endured all kinds of struggles on his journeys, shipwreck, beaten, suffering from, from, from loss of everything. He was a warrior, and yet he finished strong. Ultimately, Paul understood that his fight was not against man. It was against the, the evil and the sin that's present in this world. His fight was with the devil and sin. Each day of his life, he went to battle against those two foes in his personal life. He went to battle against those two foes in the church as well as in the community. And that's why he says here, I have fought the good fight. Second, he uses the analogy of a race. I mentioned a race earlier. Here he says, I finished the race. Paul here, I want you to to see this. I mentioned it earlier, but notice, Paul doesn't say, I won the race. I beat out everybody, and I am the champion runner. That's not what Paul says at all. Paul says, I have finished the race. I finished it. I, I accomplished the goal that God had for my life. I told the Ephesians years earlier, there in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, when he was headed back after his third missionary journey to Jerusalem, he told them that his goal was to finish his course. His goal was not to beat others. It was not to win. His goal was simply to finish the race that God had set before him. The writer of Hebrews explains that each believer has a course marked out for them there in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. So the course is unique for us. Each and every one of us are on a different course. We're running a different race. So you're not to run my race. I'm not to run your race. But you're to finish your race, and I'm to finish my race, and you're to finish your race, and we're to do all of that for the glory of God. That's what Paul's saying here. I have finished the race. Some of these races are relatively straight. Some of them have a few more curves in them. Some seem to be all uphill. Feel like your life is on that course? Some of you may feel like, man, my, my, my course is all downhill. It's straight. It's, it seems to be easy. I, I would caution you because there's probably a curve or a dip coming up. All seem to be long. The truth is some are longer. Regardless of the course that you have for your life, you as a follower of Jesus, your goal is to finish. It's to be faithful to the end. And so how do you do that? Writer of Hebrews, as I mentioned earlier, gives us some insight Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. What are these witnesses that you're talking about, Mr. Writer of Hebrews? Because we don't know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's chapter 11. 
It's the Hall of Faith. You go back there and you see that all these men and women listed out who finished well in their life, who were faithful to the end. The, they are this cloud of witnesses that we're to look at and model our lives after. So we, since we've seen their example, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance that the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what the writer is saying. Look to Jesus. You've got the examples of the others, but the greatest example you have is Jesus. He finished well. And because he finished well, all these others were able to finish well as well. So we finish strong by living out these words. We remember the example who've run, of those who have run before us. And so we follow their example. We set aside anything and everything that would hinder us. This includes the good stuff and the bad stuff, the sin and those encumbrances that are good, but they're not the best for us. And we lay them aside so that we can run our best. I remember being in high school and junior high both, and, man, I, I am a modest guy, right? I, I, I mean... I guess if I'm at the beach, you'll see me with my shirt off. But I, I just don't hang out, well, even in my own house, usually, without a shirt on. And so I hated track season because what do you wear when you run track? Like skimpy things that are like right here, like basketball shorts in 1975. We don't do that anymore, thankfully. I, I see a rebound to that, unfortunately. But I, I remember I would take my, my wind pants off, slickies I used to call them in the 90s. I would take them off to run the race. As soon as I got done, I'd put those things back on. I mean, it was just terrible. But the reason you wear little to nothing when you run is because if you have a lot of stuff weighing you down, what does it do? It weighs you down. You can't run your best. You can't compete your best. And so Paul, or the writer here in Hebrews is saying, put everything aside that's going to weigh you down. Sin, the bad stuff, encumbrances, perhaps the good stuff. Put those things aside that are going to weigh you down. Look to Jesus. He's the author, the perfecter. He's the one who's the beginning and the end of your faith. And run with his strength. Finish the race. This leads to Paul's final analogy. I've kept the faith. The statement refers to having maintained the apostolic doctrine that has been deposited to him. So the gospel is what he had charged Timothy. We've seen multiple times in this letter. He's charged Timothy to keep this, to preserve the doctrine of the church. So what we see in Paul's life is that he persevered in what he preserved. He constantly fought hard to preserve the gospel, even if it meant him persevering through sufferings and heartaches. He remained faithful to the gospel from the very beginning, and now at the end of his life, he's glorying in how the Lord has enabled him to do that. Many others could not say this of themselves. Four examples we see in in the two letters here to Timothy are Hymenaeus, Alexander, Phygelus, and Hermogenes. First two were mentioned in the first letter, the second two were mentioned in this letter, and we see these four men walked away from the faith. They did not even finish the race. Others that he gives as examples in this latter part of this passage that we're looking at this morning, they might not have started well, or they might not have had a good middle, but they finished well. But these four men never finished the race. They let their guard down. They took shortcuts and compromised. And so the result was nothing more than a departure from the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The charge here to Timothy and to us today then is finish strong. We fight the good fight. We finish the race and we keep the faith. Verse 8 shows us how to do this. Keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on the prize. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, the key to remaining faithful to the end is keeping your eye on the prize. I'm going to, again, use the image of a racer, because that's what Paul's using here. What is, a, what is a person who's running a race doing? They got their eye focused on the goal line, the finish line. They're looking at that little ticker uh, strip going across the end. They want to finish the race. They want to get to that point because that's the goal for them. They got to keep your eye on the prize. Paul here knew what awaited him. The crown of righteousness would be awarded to him by the Lord Jesus. That's what he says here in verse 8. See, Emperor Nero had either condemned him or was about to condemn him as an unrighteous uh, uh, felon, as someone who had been declared guilty and under the condemnation of the law. But in Jesus, through the blood that was shed there on the cross, Jesus had declared Paul already positionally righteous. You understand what I mean by that? In Jesus, he has become righteous. He has been made righteous positionally. He's no longer a sinner under the condemnation of that sin. His sin has been washed through the blood of Jesus so that now Paul, like you and I, are positionally righteous. When God the Father looked at Paul and when God the Father looks at us, if we're in Christ, he does not see our sin and he didn't see Paul's sin. He saw the covering of the blood of Jesus on his life. He was positionally declared righteous righteous. But was Paul sinless? No. If you read the book of Acts, you see that he got a pretty good heated tiff with Barnabas over a guy that's mentioned in this passage, John Mark. John Mark uh, uh, deserted on that first missionary journey, went home. So on the second missionary journey, John Mark now wants to to pile up with Paul and go back. And Paul says, no, brother, I I can't use a deserter. I I would not have you on this trip. Barnabas, the great encourager, says we need to take him. There was this disturbance that went went on between them, a very heated disturbance. And so the two departed. Paul took Silvanus or Silas, and uh, Barnabas took John Mark, and both went and proclaimed the gospel. I just got to believe that in that disagreement, there was some sin taking place. Have you ever been in a disagreement with someone else? Another Christian or Another brother or sister in Christ. It's just human nature for us to get heated. It's human nature for us to sin. And so Paul was not a sinless man. He was a flawed man. He was a fallen man. But for the grace of God, he would be a crispy critter. Some of you thought that was funny last week, so I figured I'd throw it again this Sunday. Jesus made a difference in his life, but he was not completely sinless, just like we're not sinless. Paul's saying here, When he talks about this crown of righteousness, he's saying, in Jesus, I am positionally righteous, but I'm looking forward to the day that I'm not just positionally righteous, but I'm practically righteous. That sin has been done away with. The old things that I struggled with for all these years, the thoughts that I thought, the things that I was tempted to look at, the things that drew my heart to things that were not right will be no more. And I will be practically righteous in Jesus. Jesus. That's what's going to be awarded to him on that day he talks about. He's looking into the future to the return of Christ, to the eschaton if you want to go to the technical term. He's looking forward, keeping his eyes on the prize. And if you want to be faithful to the end, that's how you live your life, knowing that there's coming a day when you will stand before the Lord Jesus and he's going to declare before you one or two things. Well done, my faithful servant, for your life is a pitiful mess. And you're only getting in heaven by the skin of your teeth. 
Sometimes our Christian lives resemble that latter part. We're not living for the glory of God. We're not living in light of eternity. We're not living with our eyes on the prize because we're so entangled with the things of this life and the things of this world. Paul is not so. The award Paul anticipated, thankfully, was not just for him. He says it's for all who have loved his appearing. We can live lives of faithfulness to the very end, knowing the award that motivated Paul is ours as well. So keep your eye on the prize. Be faithful to the very end. You know, what we know of Bishop Polycarp was that he started strong, he ran strong, and he finished strong. What we know of the Apostle Paul is the same thing. In many ways, the two men's lives resemble one another. And so this is not always true of us. It's not even true of every person mentioned here in the text. I've alluded to some of this already. Thankfully, we see faithfulness in the life of Timothy. We see faithfulness in Titus, who has uh, been sent to another city to preach and to pastor. We see faithfulness in Tychicus. We see faithfulness in Christians. We see faithfulness, faithfulness in Luke and, and Carpus and others. But it's not so of Mark. I mentioned that John Mark, he started well, right? He put his faith in Jesus. He was hot-hearted for the Lord. He went with Paul in his first missionary journey. And Paul, I don't believe, was reluctant in taking him along. He saw faithfulness in this man. He saw something of God and God's calling on his life. And so he welcomed him on this journey. But then the circumstances got the best of John Mark, and he left. So the middle part of his life, or that, that brief slice of his life, was not right. But thankfully, in God's church, there were men like Barnabas who are encouragers. Paul, Paul was an A-type personality, I believe. I believe he was a very black and white guy. If, you, if you're not going to run straight, he was not going to allow you to, to deter him or to distract him. That's why he broke ties. But thankfully, there are some Barnabases in the church that will take a brother or sister who's struggling and, and raise them up to where they need to be. And that's what Barnabas did to, to John Mark. They're cousins, by the way. And so what does John Mark go on to do? The first gospel that was written was written by John Mark. It's the shortest gospel. It's the fastest uh, flowing gospel. And it's a gospel that was used by many, other, many of the other gospels to write. And so if we didn't have Barnabases encouraging Marks, we wouldn't have the product that Mark produced, the benefit to the church. So that when Paul, now at the end of his life, looks uh, or writes this letter to Timothy, what does he say to Timothy? Get Mark and bring him with you because he is useful for me in ministry. He's a blessing to this, this church planner. He's a blessing to this theologian. He's a blessing to this apostle. Bring him. Bring him. He's a dear brother in the Lord. Mark, didn't, he started strong, but abandoned Paul on the mission field, but later returned in a strong way. Demas, though, started strong, but finishes poorly. Paul tells us that Demas departed and has left. He's gone to Thessalonica. The wording there doesn't necessarily mean that he became an apostate or a person who denied the faith. It simply means, I believe, that the heat got too hot in the kitchen for his comfort, and he left. He went to Thessalonica. The reason I've read a lot of this in the last few weeks, and I agree with some of these scholars and theologians, I believe that the reason Paul mentions Thessalonica is because he's trying to indicate that uh, Demas didn't leave the faith. He went to a city with a very strong evangelical church, but he walked away from Paul. He walked away from his friend. He walked away from his partner in the ministry, and so Paul is struggling with this. Demas didn't finish well. 
by the grace of God, we can finish strong even when we don't start or run strong. We just have to decide today to be faithful to the end. That's what I want you to see this, this morning, is that what Paul's t- talking about here, this concept and this example of being faithful to the end, it really doesn't matter where you're at right now. What matters is what you're going to do from this day to the end, Right? You might have wavered in your faith. You may not have a faith this morning, but you might have walked away from Jesus. You might struggle in in enormous ways in your faith, and you're just up and down, and there's no consistency in your walk with Jesus. You might not have read your Bible for for months, if not years. You might not have been on your knees for, you can't even remember the last time you got alone with the Lord and prayed and sought his face. For whatever reason, you just might have been walking at a guilty distance. That does not matter. By the grace of God, John Mark is an example of this, by the grace of God, it matters what you're going to do today to the end of your life. Determine this morning, I'm going to be faithful to the end. The rest of my life, the earlier part of my life, it might be a mess. But there's grace. There's forgiveness. There's restoration. There's healing. There's a building up. And I'm going to be faithful to the end from this day forward. This brings us to the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you and I were created by God, designed by God, designed and created to be in this relationship with Him, designed perfectly to relate with Him like no other part or piece of creation, no other aspect of creation has the opportunity and the privilege that we have, not even the angels of heaven. We're created for that. That's the good news of the Bible. The bad news is, is that what we've been talking about, this thing called sin has messed all of that up. There in the fall when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, they rebelled against God. That nature of sin that came into their lives has been passed down from generation to generation. The murder that their son uh, dictated or, 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 or did there in Acts chapter 4 is the murderous, rebellious heart that you and I were born with. We're fallen, separated from God in our sin. But the best news of all is this. That even as a sinner separated from God, the Lord Jesus, God the Son, came to do what we cannot do it from ourselves. And that is pay the price for our sin. You can't do anything to revive your dead, cold, rebellious heart. Only God can do something. And he's done it on the cross. When his arms were spread wide and nailed, when his feet were nailed there, when the spear went into his side, when the blood was dripping from his body, all of that was for you and for me so that our sin could be forgiven. There's no other way. That's the best news of the Word of God. So where are you at today on this journey called life? You walking at a guilty distance? You, you, you're a follower of Jesus, but for whatever reason, your life's not been what it should be, and, and you are walking at a guilty distance. You're not where you need to be. Your life has been a failure from, from God's perspective as a follower of Jesus. That doesn't matter what's happened in the past. Today can be a new day for you. Some of you have never put your faith in Jesus. You, you're, you're religious. You may be here for the first time in the world. You don't even know anything about this thing called the gospel or about Jesus. But today, God's speaking into your heart and saying, you need to walk with me. I created you to be in relationship with me. I've done everything necessary for you to be in relationship with me. Come unto me. Some of you this morning, you're just excited, man. God's been blessing you. You've been walking faithfully for years. And, and I, would, I would encourage you to do this. Continue to run with your eyes on Jesus. Don't give up. Don't take your eyes off the prize. Run hard after Jesus. Finish the race. Fight the good fight. Receive that crown of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for 
the great example of the Lord Jesus, the great example of the Apostle Paul, God, their faithfulness to you. Lord, I pray this morning you would help us to be faithful to the end. Uh, we're all on different, rate, different courses. We're on different paths. All of us are at different junctures of that journey. Some are closer to the end of their race. Others are just getting started. But Lord, I pray that we would all determine today that we're going to finish well. And God, we know and we realize this morning that we can't do this in our own strength. In fact, your word doesn't tell us to do that. We're to run in the strength of the Lord. We're to allow you to pick us up and carry us every single step of the way. But our struggle is, Lord, we want to do it ourselves. And when it gets too hard, we want to quit or we want to back off or we want to choose a, a, an easier path. Well, Lord, I pray you'd help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. He is the author and he is the perfecter of our faith. Lord, I pray for that Christian who's walking at a guilty distance, bound by sin, shackled by things that aren't best for them. Lord, I pray today that man, that woman, that teenager would determine in his or her own heart that from this, this day forward, I'm going to walk with Jesus. I'm going to finish well. Lord, as we, move, as we move into a time of invitation, I pray that you'd help us to respond in obedience. We really haven't learned. We really haven't heard from God. We haven't really obeyed until we respond in obedience. And so help us to do that. Give us ears to hear and a heart to respond in faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.